Turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. As human beings, we long to be known, don't we? Thank you. We long to be known, don't we? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Tim Keller, uh, in, a, in one of his books, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, says, To be known, or sorry, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. Sounds like middle school. Right. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything else. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of, self out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty like this robots. We long to be known. We crave it. As Keller notes, the idea of being known can be likewise terrifying to us. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. We long to be known and loved. It can be really frustrating when people, because some of you, seems like it's happened to me a lot recently. People will tell me they know me and then say something that, like, what, what, that ain't me. What are you talking about? It's frustrating because we need to be. Our hearts crave acceptance. Crave to be known, crave to be appreciated by that teacher, by that coach, by that friend, by that superior at work, maybe by that parent or grandparent. We're built for community, right? So it's simply a part of who we are as image bearers. But the psalmist this morning is going to remind us here in Psalm 139 that we are known by God, our Heavenly Father. We are loved by him. Loved by God enough that like, God loves us so much that he corrects us. And his knowledge of us and his love for us is so good, so perfect, so complete that that correction saves. That correction is good. It's good, it's good news for us this morning. We are loved. Loved by God enough to be known. God knows us better than we know ourselves. His presence is inescapable. Praise God. He knows us because he created us. And this is good news for us. Yet news that ought to humble us enough to cry out that God would cleanse us from our sin. So, Psalm 139. Again, uh, as, as Tim mentioned, yeah, well, we get prayers in the Bible, right? 
prayers that that are inspired by God through the mouth of, in this case, David, that we can join in prayer with. It's sort of weird, like God's giving us a prayer to pray back to him. It's good. Psalm 139. Let's pray it together. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my thoughts. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it. You know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unfold All the days uh, ordained for me were written in your book before, I, uh, before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have done nothing but I have sorry, I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thought. And see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of lasts. God knows us better than we know ourselves. His presence is capable. He knows us because he created us. This is good news for us. Yeah, news that ought to humble us enough that we would cry to him to cleanse our hearts. even especially for the sin in us that we don't see. 
So the solve consists of four parts. If you're a note taker, um, you might want to uh, note this. Um, four sections, three of which are sort of confessions about who God is, his goodness, his knowledge of us. I call it maybe a confession of praise. So verses one to six, uh, we might call, we might describe as God knows us better than we know ourselves. Section one. Section two, verses seven to 12, God's presence is inescapable. Section three is verses 13 to 18. 13 to 18, God knows us because he created. And finally, the fourth section, where we get that plea, that petition, it's, it feels maybe like a, like maybe a bit of a stark turn, uh, verses 19 to, to 24, God slay the wicked, and the wickedness is deep. So, section one, section one, God knows us better than we know ourselves, verses one to six. Let's, uh, let's read them again and consider, consider what God has for us. You have searched me, Lord, and you know. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to So here, David uh, declares in the opening, at uh, the beginning of his poem, the beginning of his prayer, that God has searched him and knows. Knows him. And we might be tempted to attribute this to the to all knowing this God, uh, uh, the omniscience, uh, there we go, uh, the omniscience of God. It would be right to do so. And yet, that doesn't seem to be what, what David is talking about here. He says, You've searched me. It's a completed action. In fact, the phrasing here is the same phrasing. That, uh, that we get in, in the story of Abraham, where God tests Abraham to see if he reveres God when he says, Abraham, go sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac, to me on the mountain that I will show you. God has searched David. He's gonna, David's going to note in section three that God knows him better than, he, uh, better than uh, we, I know myself, or he knows himself because he's his creator. But here he's talking about God's taking particular pressure. David is confident that, that God knows him because they're in covenant relationship together. But God has tested their relationship, and time and time again, David has shown to be faithful. Faithful to God's community. We think of maybe the battle of David and Goliath, or David's treatment of Saul after Saul uh, uh, turns up. God searches him and knows him. Searches and knows us, right? Yeah. At the end of the psalm, knowing this, knowing that God has searched him, David's going to ask God to search him again. So, what does God know about us? What is this? Uh, what is this uh, searching? 
told God about David. Well, David here uh, just, just runs into poetry. He's a poet at heart. Um, it's not a gift I have or a, a, a skill that I've practiced. <laughs> but he, he, he gives these, uh, these sort of opposites that, that sort of uh, that, um, that consume the whole, right? You know my sitting down and my standing up and everything in between. You know my lying down and my getting up and everything in between from when I go to bed in the morning until I fall asleep that night, all through the night. God, you know. He knows. He knows us. Like best friends who can finish one another's sentences or know what the other is thinking without saying the word. God knows. God knows us that well. And for David, this is comfort. This is good news. And as he's thinking about this, suddenly in verse 5, the, 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 the focus shifts a little. He says this, he says, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand on me. Sounds like shepherding language to me. Remember David's occupation, right? God leads as a shepherd leads. He guides as a shepherd guides. He protects as a shepherd protects. And he restrains as a shepherd restrains. And so God does with us, right? He guides us. If we're going to follow, he protects us and even restrains us in his goodness, in his gentle yet firm fatherliness. And this brings us to the high point of the section, verse 6. David's overwhelmed by God's knowledge and guidance. He recognizes it as a supreme good. And he's not, he doesn't, doesn't seem to be resentful of it. And yet, like, I think, I think one of the things, one of the reactions we could have to this in-depth knowledge of God uh, that, that God has for us, especially if we, if we believe in him, is that we might, we might feel a little uncomfortable about this. This might make us feel a little bit uneasy. Being being both a dad, a dad of a toddler and a newborn, and being a teacher, teacher of high schoolers, and, and I used to teach middle school as well. Uh, there's, there's sort of a, I, I, I haven't seen it all as a father yet, but I see in my boys, being young as they are, they love to play with they love for me to be around. In fact, one of the one of the, uh, the the sweet things about about COVID and lockdown and, and quarantine is just being home. Even trying to even trying to work with 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 my girls at my feet. Oh, sweet! Right? Being little, being a toddler, you at, at least for me, growing up in a really like safe. Or home, being with mom and dad was a comfort. Being guided by them was a comfort, was good. Contrast that now with, with, with the teenage experience. Many of us, I think, as teens, like we, we get that we get that first taste of freedom. With the driver's license, and the job, and the car, and get out and out and out. The last thing we want is to be known by God. Don't ask me about that. It's not, I, I don't need your help on that. 
I'll, I'll figure it out. We want to do it by ourselves. For some, for some, maybe not a big deal. We worked through it. Others, we made made choices that were sort of disastrous. But it's maybe a, a an illustration here, a picture here. How how is our attitude before our heavenly Father? Are we toddlers that run to Him, or are we teens that are like, "No, nah, I'm going to Are we running to the guidance and the protection and the comfort and the care of our Father, or are we fleeing from Him? Well, David clearly has embraced like toddler like. He wants to be in the presence of his father. And yet, here in section two, he's going to reflect on that idea. Like, what, what would it mean? What would it mean to try to flee from the presence of my heavenly father? What would it mean to try to flee from God? Would that be successful? Section two, verse 7 to 12. God's presence is escaping. Read it with me. And maybe this is, this is maybe the most, most familiar section of the whole song. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God's presence, David realizes, confesses, prays, is an escape. And this is both comfort and terror. Always. The psalmist declares the inescapable nature of God, the hard and good reality of our existence is that there is no place that we can be away from the spirit or the face of God. God's there. Being alone, God's there. Just me and my thoughts, God's there. Foreign country, God's there. Incognito on our web browser, God's there. There is no darkness that God's light doesn't shine through. There's no disguise that could deceive me. Now, even more than uh, even uh, now, more than in the last section, we are pressed with the question: Is this good news for us, or are we terrified? By it? See, the presence and power of God means blessing for His people. He sees the injustice that we suffer. He sees the pain we experience. He sees our faith and our righteousness and promises for us resurrection and glory for those of us who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's good news. But his presence and his power means curse for those who would rebel against him. He sees the injustice. We do. He sees the pain we cause. He sees our faithlessness and our wickedness and promises to respond to justice. So, 
the reaction of the people of God to this idea that God's presence is inescapable, it is both comforting and fearful. As I think, is the relationship with the character any good for soul? We are comforted by them and rightly fearful of their disappointment and their disappointment. I think the most dangerous response for us uh, in looking at this text would be apathy. If the permanent, knowing, loving presence of God leaves us with an emotional or an emotional or intellectual shrug, we have to wonder whether we believe in God. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He's always with us. And He knows us because He's our creator. He created us. So, section three, uh, verses, uh, verses 13 to 18. For God created me, sorry, for God created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sin. When I awake, I'm still with you. So God is our creator, and therefore he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us intimately. He is always present with us, and his knowledge is rooted in his role as our creator. And this is no small thing, right? He created us, especially in our mother's womb. He formed Adam from the dust of the ground, of whom we are his descendants. We are created with purpose, value, and meaning, specifically by God. I, I was, you are part of God's plan from the beginning. Our very existence, our being here, right here, right now, our being in existence at all, is rooted in the will of God. It's not random. It's not dumb. Verses 17 and 18, the breaks out into praise because he recognizes the vastness of God's knowledge of him. And not just him, but everything. God was there before the creation, he knows. He was there during the creation. He was the creator, he knows. Even me, little old me, was created by God. Even you, created 
And not just that, he continues to get to know him, to get to know who, to get to know us. His knowledge is incomprehensible. In that, we find comfort and reason to praise. God knows us better than we know Praise the Lord. God's presence is inescapable. Praise the Lord. He knows us because he created us. Praise the Lord. Now, now the psalmist comes with a petition. A plea. He's got an ask. He's got a big ask. An ask that has sparked all this reflecting on God's knowledge. All this concern about, the, about how much God knows him. Section four, call it slave the wicked, slave the wickedness. He says, uh, verse 19, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. And uh, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you? And abhor those who rebel against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any offensive way in you. And believe in the everlasting, in the way everlasting. This is what he's been building up to. This is what's driving this reflection, this, this confession of praise. He's not simply in awe of the presence and knowledge of God. He's in desperate need. His needs are twofold. He cries out that God would slay the wicked. Now notice, the psalmist doesn't describe them as his enemies. Whose enemies are they? It's God's enemies. It may be, or it seems that, the psalmist is living amongst the enemies of God. Maybe even has common cause with them in some way. Maybe, David is describing his book, he describes them as bloodthirsty. Right? Is they're bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your names. So maybe David here is talking about his own men. First Samuel 24, right? Saul is hunting him. He's, he, Saul has betrayed David. David has they, they, they say, the right to defend himself and take Saul's life. And David insists, no, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. You know what? The Lord will deal with it. And his men are like, kill him. Take what's yours. God's already promised. Or maybe others uh, during that same time, David flees to Gath, a Philistine city, and lives amongst, amongst the Gittites. Maybe that, that's it. Maybe it's sometime later. Maybe it's uh, uh, when he's fleeing Absalom. We don't know. Whatever the situation was, we hear echoes of Solomon's point in Proverbs, Proverbs 1. It says, My son, if, uh, if uh, sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let us lie and wait for innocent blood. Let's ambush some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave. 
and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get uh, we will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our hearts, our, our houses with plunder. Cast lots with us. Let us uh, let us share all the loot. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on uh, on their paths, for their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of those who go after those not gain. It takes the lives of those who go. Look, you fear the Lord. Don't join this Don't join this wickedness. And David's, David's feeling that temptation. He's feeling that temptation to, to, uh, to throw his, his um, allegiance in with men who would misuse the name of the Lord. And whether these temptations, this, this sort of bloodthirsty temptation, is, is literal or figurative. It may be, in some ways, like part and parcel of being in possession of power. We know David becomes a man of some power and authority very, very quickly in his life. Having power makes gain, gain at the expense of others, more easily accessible, and that temptation more real. So note David's primary motives of resistance. His primary mode of resistance here is to call out for the Lord to bring justice. He doesn't see that as his job primarily. At the very least, he starts with God save, God bring justice, even death to those who are calling for bloodshed in the name of the Lord. He prays that they for their destruction. Then he confesses his hatred for those who hate God. Because followers of Jesus, it's a little startling. Isn't it? It's like, how do we hold this together with like Matthew 5 544? Uh, Jesus says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who are persecuted. And look, tension exists here. Just like, love your enemies. David says, I, God, I hate those who hate you. Look, I'm not sure we should try to resolve that. At very least, I'm not going to resolve that question for us. I want us to hold on to God. That we are right to hate those who hate God, who misuse his name for their bloodthirsty endeavors. And at the same time, we love those who hate God. They too are in image bearers and in need of redemption. There's hope for their redemption. Both are right. Both are necessary. But the tension, I think, can't be resolved. The psalmist confesses no allegiance to these wicked men. These wicked men that seem to be in his midst. He distances himself from them before the world. But all this is leading up to that critical piece, the piece that I think is most important for us in this in this song. The key request that the whole thing has been building up to. Verse 23. 
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way and lead me in the way of the master. At the beginning, verse 1, the psalmist rejoices that the Lord has searched. And now here in verse 23, he cries out, Lord, search me again. David recognizes that in spite of the, uh, David recognizes that, that in spite of the, in spite of his own recognition that the men around him are wicked, that those around him hate God, and that he hates that, that he too is susceptible to the very same He's anxious that in his heart, despite his best intentions, he too is capable of believing and acting in ways that are contrary to the will of God. He's anxious about it. And brings his anxiety to God. The only one who knows him better than himself. He says, if there's any offensive way in me, here's um, offensive, it's kind of a general term, but it points back to the bloodthirsty intent of the wicked men groups in that. Am I doing the same thing, God? Am I just dressing it up a little, a little bit different? Am I putting church in language on it? I deceived myself in some way. One, of the, uh, one commentator uh, translates it this way see if there is any idolatrous way in me. It's interesting. Life, is, life has two paths. We, we, we hear this all the time in Scripture, right? The narrow way and the broad way. The, the small gate, or the, yeah, the narrow gate, and the large gate. Uh, wide is the path that leads to destruction, narrow is the path that leads to life. The way of righteousness. We hear this, this discussion of way all the time. It's a common metaphor. So, and this, this commentator's point is that, look, like for David, and I think for us, there's two paths. There's not lots of paths, there's two. There's God's path, and there's the path of idols, the path of Satan, the path of wickedness, the path of righteousness, the path of Is there in me, is there part of me that's got one foot on the wide path? Is there one part of my heart that's trying to go through the, the, the wide path? Is there some part of me that's still holding on to idols? He's unwilling to rest on his morals, to be proud because he's more righteous than those around him. He's willing to be proud because he's marginally more righteous. You mean this, right? He declares the goodness of a God who knows him better than he knows himself. He declares the goodness of a God who is perfect in his morality. He declares his loyalty to that God in that he wants to be stripped of all wickedness and all sin. 
by the God who knows and loves you. The psalmist doesn't simply want the defeat of his enemies or even the defeat of the enemies of God. But he wants to be purified of wickedness himself. Because he knows the danger of being an enemy. He knows his own proneness to wander into sin. So it seems like this morning, are we, maybe we find ourselves praying against the wicked, praying for God's justice to come. Are we willing to turn, to turn our focus to say, oh, Lord, expose the wickedness in you. All this praise and confession of God brings us to a point of vulnerability and dare say humiliation. God, I don't know myself as well as you. And as much as I try, I'm not entirely righteous. I'm not as good as I tried to look. So search me. And expose my sin, my idolatry, that I may follow you more faithfully. Since God this morning is calling us to renounce the safety and the shine of our personal brand, our personal persona, our professional self, or our Instagram self, or our church self, or our eHarmony self, or even more than the self that we try to convince ourselves is who we really are. God's asking us, he's calling us through the example of David to lay our whole self before God the Father and to allow him to pick us up make us and make us more like him. Look, it, it, it seems like we're in a, we're in a, a particular season in, in the history of the American church. I'm sure we've had seasons like this before, but where we're seeing a, a large number of Christian individuals and Christian institutions over the last few years being exposed for having long hidden sin and corruption. Sin and corruption that's gone unrepented of and even actively covered up for the sake of fame, money, power, and success. The desire to look good and to maintain a positive brand recognition, or not we want to describe it, to look sinless, which is a silly thing to try to look for, right? What? That's in your marketing strategy. Uh, has overrode the responsibility to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Shouldn't surprise the shit. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing we try to do with ourselves. It's the same thing. We're constantly tempted to hide ourselves, to look better than we, than we are, to, to be dishonest, maybe even with ourselves, with where we're at. This is the very thing that the psalmist example reminds us we can't do. We do it now. It's going to happen to us if we 
uh, ascend to a position of power and authority start here. In spite of all the ways we might be getting it right, all the ways we, we might be faithful, we must continue to seek the correction of our father. Since this is the best thing we can do for ourselves, for our church, for the ministries that we're a part of, to act in humility always, to practice regular repentance, and to walk humbly in all that we do. The psalmist is confident in his own righteousness, yet he is more confident in God's knowledge. He cries out to the Lord to search him and cleanse him so that he will stay on the way of everlasting, on God's path, on that way of righteousness. All this praise and confession of God brings us to a point of vulnerability, a point of humiliation. We must concede, confess before the Father that we do not see ourselves. We do not know ourselves as well as God knows us. We do not know all that we are supposed to be, but our Creator does. He loves us. That's good. We cannot rest in our incomplete righteousness. Especially in the face of God's righteousness. We must, like children, embrace the safety and the love of our Heavenly Father, who corrects us rightly. So we, we pray, God, search us. And expose our sin, expose our hidden idolatry, that we may follow you more faithfully. So that we, uh, so we, so will we, will we pray this? This is the example that we're given this morning. Will we ask God to reveal the wickedness of our own hearts to us? Will we trust Him, especially when it's hard, particularly when it's painful? That we would be more like him? Will we embrace that vulnerability before our Father? Vulnerability of God's perfect knowledge of us and his ever presence with us? Are we willing to renounce control? Or will we flee from his presence? Since God knows us better than we know ourselves, His presence is in He knows us perfectly because of who He is. Let's this morning embrace that reality and seek Him that He would make us more like His Son, Jesus, that the world would know He is God. Search us, God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive or idolatrous way in us. And lead us in everlasting. We ask.
accordance with the grace, resurrection power, your soul, Jesus. Amen.